Today's reading is from 1 Peter 2, 2 through 10. <clears throat> like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, I pray that as we look at this text, that we might encounter you and that we might be reminded of your love and your mercies and that we might see maybe ourselves through your eyes for the first time in a while. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I wish my mother were here because I would make her proud today because I'm going to use something I learned in college. I took that philosophy major 30 years ago and people would say, what are you going to do with that? Comes full circle today. Because I remember in a class, in the philosophy classes, where we were describing worldviews and all these kind of cool things, whatever, and, and our professor said, um, here's just some, some basic questions to help you figure out what your worldview is. I thought, oh, that seems important. So this many years, I actually remember, maybe it's because they're really short, maybe because they're really simple, and maybe because there's only four, but I still remember them. So we're going to look at them today. The worldview diagnostic questions begin with, who am I? Who am I? Okay. Where am I is question two. What's the problem? And what's the solution? Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. But when we answer these questions, it kind of helps us understand and bring some clarity. It helps us narrow down some of the options of what could happen or where we could go or what we could do and what we could value in the world. When we understand and ask the questions, who am I? Where am I? What's the problem? And what's the solution? 
And I think this text here is a culmination of what Peter's trying to do in the first part of this letter. Peter writes uh, in, in this letter to, he starts it off in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, praise be to the God of our Father, for our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. The idea that who we are, where we are, what's the problem and what's the solution can be summed up in that because of his great mercy in Jesus Christ, he's given us a new birth into a living hope. That we are now born into a new world, a new kingdom, a new life. And by the way, we must separate this from uh, maybe some revivalist thinking that you may have inherited from somewhere along the way. The idea that the, the message of Jesus, the message of the cross, the message of religion is to hopefully make it through this world as unscathed as possible while we can get into heaven and sing songs to glory forever and ever. Amen. But as we talk about week in and week out, I'm just going to always remind us that, no, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. It's an already but not yet. The kingdom that, that Peter is talking about, that Jesus called us into, this living hope, is living. It's living in you. It's living in me. It's living in the church, and it has for the past 2,000 years. Sometimes that living has been on life support, it seems, and sometimes it's been thriving and flourishing. And either way, it is a living view of a God who is alive and well, who's reigning, despite what we see in the news, despite what headlines we get, despite what news flashes buzz our phones in the middle of the night. We are living in a new world, and it's because of Jesus we are brought into that. Therefore, like newborn babies, we should, who crave pure spiritual milk... We do it so that we might grow in our salvation. Why? Because we've already tasted that the Lord is good. Peter is trying to give you the context. Peter is writing to a group of people who are Christians. They are identified as Christians. They are filled by the Spirit. They are marked with the marks of the church. And they are already converts. Now, there's some Gentile and there's some Jewish, and it's still part of that mixture. But they are living expressly in a pagan empire. They are living in in an empire known as Rome, Probably heard of it. Kind of has a bad reputation on some sides and some really good reputation on some other. But one thing that they did do is they let everybody live at peace with each other as long as you lived at peace with them. And if you didn't, well, Pax Romana was peace with a fist, wasn't it? Pax Romana was something that was bought at a great price. And if any group of people would kind of get up or get out of line, they had ways to fix that. They had ways to shut it down. So here we have the Jewish people, the Gentile people, who now confess Christ. What does that mean to confess Christ? Well, they recognize who they are. Who am I? Who am I? I'm a person made in the image of God. I'm a person who is seen and known by the God of the universe. I am a person who is loved by Jesus. Who am I? Where am I? I'm a person loved by Jesus, who's known by Jesus, who's been filled with the Spirit and marked with the Spirit, guaranteeing my inheritance and my name in the annals of the eternal life. But where am I? I'm in an empire that doesn't acknowledge Jesus and doesn't take too kindly to the proclamation that there is another king out there. 
that there's a king bigger than them, that there's a king mightier than them, that there's a king that's going to last longer than them. Um, they're living in an empire that doesn't take kindly to, these, uh, to the subterfuge that the church uh, exemplified and lived out. That's why he's writing this, to give them peace, to give them comfort, to give them a vision of who they are and whose they are, that they might be able to carry on in a non-Christian world. you got to remember that not only is the church a fledgling institution, it's not even institutionalized yet. There is no Christendom for them to lean back on. There's no vision of a world when, you know, the blue laws were respected and everybody was Chick-fil-A. Right? They weren't living in a good old days world. They were only living in a forward-thinking, new kingdom life. Rome brings death. Jesus brings life. But in the meantime, Rome may bring us pain. Rome may bring us suffering. Rome may ostracize us, castigate us, imprison us, execute us. That is the world that Peter was writing to so that they might take hope and take hold and remain faithful to Jesus in spite of what they might be feeling in the immediate pressures. And so that's a little bit different for us because I think we can recognize, and if we haven't, I hope I'm not the one giving you the news, but the United States is, is a post-Christian nation, if it ever was one to begin with, but it's definitely post now. And I don't say that with a sense of fear or lament. I say that with a sense of excitement and opportunity. Why would you say that? Why would you not want it to be? Well, the reason is a Christian nation, Christendom, is, is, is an institutional power. It's an institutional culture. It's an institutional faith that kind of almost uh, inoculates people, you know, gives them just enough Christianity so they don't catch the real thing. Give them just enough sense of Jesus' morality. Give them just enough sense of equality of all people. Give them just enough sense of dignity of, the, of, of your neighbor. Just give them just enough so they don't actually have to see the beauty of Jesus and what he did for them on the cross and how faith in him fills you with the spirit and a new life and a new love and a new passion and a new world and an eternal setting so that you no longer are caught up in having to play the games of today. Right? That's exciting. And now we actually have a light to offer that is conversion, that is transformation, that is being brought into a living hope, not just an institutional preference or presence. That said, I gave you the excitement, right? But it also is difficult at times, isn't it? Because we still do long for the days when, all right, let me just be honest. I had to make a choice. I don't know if I've made the right one. I have a kid who's not here with us today because she's good enough to be on a soccer team. But the soccer teams, well, they play on Sundays. Most often we can get to church down there in, our, in our, the church in our neighborhood and still get to the soccer game later, but on occasion, it disrupts it. And now we're here at this crossroads do we Eric Little it and just say no sports on Sundays or do we join the team that only plays on Sunday? I don't know. Kind of a tension, isn't it? So sometimes I long for the good old days when people kind of respected the presence of the church, respected the authority that it once had, respected the power of the privilege of the masses. But I think ultimately I'd rather give that up and have us be a vibrant and living hope. 
to be, to be a house being built up by living stones, not just institutional stones. You see, as Peter wraps up this passage, he says, as you come to him, the living stone. By the way, isn't it interesting? Isn't it kind of funny? Peter, remember how he's, why he's called Peter? He was Simon. And Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And this is where we differ with our Catholic brethren. They think upon this rock, they meant Peter. And we see that upon this rock, it means the confession, you are the Christ. Upon the confession, you are the Christ, I will build my church. Not on you, Peter. That's why he says, on this rock, this boulder, this confession in, Mark, in Matthew 16, I will build my church. You are the Christ. And then he says, Peter, to remember this by, I'm going to call you Pebble. Because that's what Peter means. It's a little, teeny, tiny little rock. That's why we're not building our tradition on the pebble Peter. We're building it on the rock, the boulder, confession, Jesus is Lord. It's funny, though, that as Peter's writing his letter, he's like, I've got a, he's, got a, he's got a brand, doesn't he? he? He's got a marketing ploy there. Like He can go with it. Like, hey, I'm Peter. We're going to talk about the living stones. We're going to talk about the cornerstones. He sticks with the rock motif. As you come to the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God. I hate the idea of us having to face that decision of being rejected by our neighbors so that we might be chosen by God. It doesn't always come into conflict. Not every decision we have to make puts us into conflict with the, with the living God, but sometimes it does. And far be it from us to choose to be accepted by the humans and disassociate ourselves from God. But... Jesus, the living stone, the one rejected by humans, chosen by God, and is precious to him. And you also, like living stones, are being built. You are being built into a spiritual house. Not an institutional house, not a Christendom house. You are living stones being built into a living house by the living stone, Jesus himself. Why? To be a holy priesthood to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. To be a holy priesthood. By the way, in the Old Testament, the only time the people of Israel were called a holy nation, a priestly nation, was in Exodus 19. It is interesting, by the way, that he's writing to so many um, Gentiles, but he's just quoting scripture after scripture after scripture. He quotes Isaiah three times. He has an allusion to Hosea. He's quoting Exodus 19. He's building this continuity that Jesus of the Old Testament is the fulfillment in the New Testament. That God's promises to Israel are extended and expanded and, and continued in his ways with us, the church. Not as a replacement, but as an extension, as an open door. As there's the model and here's the fully built one. You and I are living stones being built by Jesus into a spiritual house. Wow. Sometimes I just want to let that settle in. Then he calls us a holy priesthood. What, what's the role of a priest? Now, it depends what background you come from, right? What's the role of a priest? Oh, that's the guy who sits in the confession box and, I don't know, just asks you questions. What's the role of a priest? Uh, I've, I've read in the Old Testament, that's the guy who like, kills animals and puts them on altars and sets them on fire, right? Probably sometimes. What's a priest? A priest is someone who stands on behalf of God, representing the Lord, and proclaiming his ways and words and deeds to the people around them. 
And you remember when in that micro model, remember, like I, I'm thinking about an architect who builds a model and say, this is what we're going to build for you. And then they actually build it. That's the difference between what God was doing with Israel and is now doing through the church. You see, God called out his people out of Exodus, out of, out of Egypt in Exodus, and he, he called them and he says, I'm taking you where? To a promised land. And in that promised land, you will be my people and I will be your God and I will bless you and we will fulfill all these promises and life will be great as long as you do things well. And, you know, it goes on from there and there's a, there's a lot of history you can read up on. But what did he do? He called them out and he labeled them by what? The tribes. There's the 12 tribes of Israel and 11 territories. Why 11? Because the Levites. Did the Levites get a territory? No. Did the Levites get land? No. Did the Levites get a job? Yes. To be priests. To be the priests, to be the leaders, to be the spiritual leaders, the ones who are going to represent God to all the nations and all the tribes surrounding. Now, if you'll take a little liberty with me, much like Peter does when he's taking these passages from the Old Testament and applying them to Jesus, what if we could put on our spiritual imaginations? What if we, looking around here, what if God has called you to be part of his church to be the priests, and he's going to scatter you out amongst the tribes or the nations? What does that do for us? I think and I hope that shapes our worldview. That changes our question, our answer to the question, who am I? Very often we see, thank you, Lord Jesus, I'm a broken sinner, saved by grace, thank you for healing me, and I'm going to limp along through this life so that you can just be with me as I am broken and you can help put me back together again. Hey, that's a great first step. But there's more. I sound like an infomercial on TV. But there's more. There's more to than just being personally healed. He's now going to welcome you into a family. And look around. Here is a family that is actually thicker than blood. It's actually more eternal and more long-lasting. None of us chose each other, but when God brings us together, he, he unites us to Christ through faith, and he unites us to each other as his body. Okay, so now we can be broken together and be healed over time, right? Okay, sure. That's one step further. But I think, and there's more. The more is God has made us not only to come and be healed and be personally united with Christ, not only to come and be gathered together and to be an outpost, an outpost of God's grace and mercies, but we are now to be a light and a prophetic voice and to be some hands and some feet to put to shoe leather what Jesus is doing on this world. He said, you will do more than I will, mostly because he just does it through us. And we just, as long as we go willingly, it's great. But he heals us, calls us, names us, gathers us, prepares us to be his priesthood. To go out to the world and to proclaim his goodness, to proclaim his good works, to proclaim the light in darkness. The kingdom come. Repent for the kingdom of God is not only at hand, it's present and it's here. To do the works, to set our faces towards justice and mercy, to set our faces towards proclamation of the good news of Jesus. You have been prepared for this. You, whether you are young and kind of clueless about life and just lots of energy but don't know what you're doing, or you, if you've lived a long time and the knees have worn out, you are still priests 
ready to proclaim the good news. Who am I? You're a priest. I'm a priest of God, the eternal Lord. Where am I? Where he put me. I have a gathered community in which I worship, in which I gather, in which I am am trained and equipped, but I am living, I'm working, I have neighbors, I have jobs, I have, I mean, some of us drive a little further to church than others, but we are all situated, aren't we? Where has God put you? Where he wants me. Where does he want me? Where he put me? It's kind of circular. I know it's, a, it's philosophically he's got an argument issue. But so I, I struggle sometimes when people go, I don't know what the Lord has for me. I don't know what he has for you two weeks from now, two years from now, ten years from now. But I know today, because he put you one place, look around and let's be faithful. You are a chosen people. What's the problem? Where do we begin? Where do we begin? But you know what? It's easy to get bogged down in doing the critical stuff of what the problem is, isn't it? It's easy to get bogged down in inciting what's gone wrong. And again, I, I don't. I'm tired of seeing more headlines of shootings and shootings and shootings in our country. Hate it. I'm tired of seeing people waste their money on, on the idea that if they get just buy enough stuff, they'll find happiness and meaningfulness. I'm tired of seeing people say, I've already done my duty, I'm, I'm opting out, and I'm just going to enjoy my life. I'm tired of people saying, um, well, did I make enough money? We can't really give stuff away. I'm tired of seeing a lot of problems, and I don't know the fix. I just recently heard one today, there's pros and cons, and if, uh, if you have pros and cons, and then you have progress, and the opposite must be Congress. I don't know, that always seems to be a good joke. But I don't have the fixes for Congress. I don't have the fixes for human depravity. I don't have the fixes for greed. I don't have the fixes for violence. But I do have a place where I've been put. And I have a community that I'm gathered with. And together, we can at least try to do what we can where God's put us to be the priest in that tribe, in that nation, in that corner. We don't have to be in the most best situated place. We could be in an awkwardly situated place because God has put us there. And you know what he said to us? I'm going to send you to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and then to where? the ends of the earth, and I will be with you always. This is what makes this passage about being a priesthood so bizarre and so exciting and a little little terrifying, not going to lie, that God has called us to be not the solution to everybody's problems, but to be a light. That's the thing. What's, who am I? Where am I? What's the problem? What's the solution? We can't fix everything, do we? We do not have the means and powers to fix all the problems that we see. But instead, look what he says here at the end of this passage. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. What did he call us to do? That we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Now, again, that's not strictly evangelism, and that's not strictly good deeds, and that's not strictly justice ministry. It's not strictly mercy ministry. It's in all those ways, all the above. However God has gifted us, placed us, filled us, and sent us, we get to be those who proclaim and declare the praises 
of the God who called us out of darkness and into a wonderful light. Do they have to like us? No. Do they have to accept us? No. Do they have to persecute us? They're probably not going to persecute us as much as we think they are. They're probably just going to ignore us. Okay. I've done that before. I'll do it again. But friends, let us be shaped and formed in our identity as we go through not only this day, but as we go together as a church through this time as a transition. Let us take hold and hang on to that we are a priesthood, not just a gathering of Christians. We are a priesthood designed to proclaim God's goodness to a world that is in darkness. How we do it is manifold, but the purpose and the mission is singular. Does that make sense? May the Lord help us as we go. Father, as we look to live this light, as we look to participate in this community that you've called us to and gathered us in, Lord, we pray that you would help us and fill us with grace and mercy so that we can do your declaring well and honestly and that our own lives won't bring you reproach, that our own lives will boast before we have words the goodness of Jesus. Lord, we love you and we want to brag about you to all that we can. We ask for the opportunity this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.